Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 39 of the Ad Nauseam podcast. My name is Jeff Winkle, and I'm here burning the almost midnight oil here on the podcast with my good friend, David Noe. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing pretty well. It's good to be here in the vomitorium with these lucubrations. Yes, the, these lucubrations. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Difficult word to translate, by the way, lucubratio. Luca, what, 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 what's your go-to? It's a midnight study, but I can never quite figure out, you know... How to take it? How to how to construe it? Lucubratio. It's, it's Lucubratio. Sound, it sounds so mellifluous. Like, like it's like a wonderful thing. Yeah. Well, yeah. Men, men of the Renaissance and Reformation, they loved this expression. Anything that they were doing that they considered not really that important, or at least a little bit of false modesty, I offer you my lucubrations. Oh, I see. I got I to gotta use that. I got to work that into my daily. You should try it. Should, yeah. Yeah. You busy tonight, Jeff? Well, I, I like I need more eye rolls for my wife. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so let's get right into it. Let's right? do it. Okay. Yes. We got a shout out and our shout out this, uh, this week goes to one Matthew McCravey from Durham, North Carolina. Ah, Matthew. And he is uh, a listener and wrote into us. And uh, What did are, he say, Jeff? He said that he lives in Durham. And he works as a critical care medicine fellow at a local academic institution that is extremely defensive of their brand. Ah, they got a brand. They got a brand. Aren't yes. we defensive of our brand? I'm, I'm very defensive yeah, of our brand. Put it on everything. That's right. Come on. It's like like, a, like Gene Simmons from Kiss. Right. It will, if it sells, we'll, we'll Mouse we'll pads. Do it. Is there an ad nauseum mouse pad yet? If there isn't, that's a, that's a crime. Okay, let's yeah. get back to McCravey. So um, this... Local institution, defensive of the brand, and I think also very defensive of their basketball team. Okay. If I'm intuiting correctly. Yes, but he says don't mention it don't by say name. It, so I won't. All right. Uh, he says that his undergraduate uh, studies were done at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, where even, he says, the biochemistry majors have to take some 200-level humanities course. Incredible. That's yeah. good for them, isn't yeah. it? Thumbs up to Rhodes Absolutely. College. Absolutely. Good on Rhodes. Yeah. yeah. And thanks, Matthew, for listening. We're so appreciative. Yes. Thanks for tuning in. So, Dave, what are we talking about today? Today, we are going to go into a deep dive, monograph style, into one of the leading lights of the Dutch Renaissance. Did you know there was a Dutch Renaissance? I had no idea until out of the blue, you brought up this topic. Yeah, Daniel Heinzius. Yes. Interesting, interesting fellow. So we're going to give the listeners, again, a really um, a brief but deep dive into this individual, Daniel Heinzius. Truth be told, right, human life in the history of... Fancy letters, fancy literature, belles lettres, is more deeply varied and textured than anything we can imagine. I don't know about you, Jeff, but mm-hmm. I often think that, you know, we are the first ones, our generation, to light upon some idea, study some interesting subject or area. Yeah. But as it turns out, the old expression, nil novi sub sola est. Nothing new under the sun. Exactly. Right. So these men of the uh, the early 17th century, these men and women from about 1600 to about 1620, mm-hmm. they were firing on all cylinders when it comes to literature and poetry. I mean, Jeff, as you did the research for this episode, yeah. what did you think? What were your initial impressions? Well, I realized that I had a lot of kind of preconceived notions about what you know what was going on in the, the Renaissance in the northern part of Europe. And everything that I read about this guy uh, dispelled so many of those notions. It's incredible. Yeah. And I don't know if again I don't know if he's a typical um, representative. He's a, a superstar, right? But nothing what I expected. 
We're going to get into some of that. Dave, you got the opening quote, right? Yes, and this is from an important scholar named Barbara Becker Contarino. And the name of the book is simply Daniel Heinzius. It's in the uh, Twain World's Author Series, 1978. And this is what she says. Evaluations of character and personality are largely subjective. As Heinzius's reputation illustrates, it is above all the literary work of the author that made an impact on his age and that still speaks to us today. Heinzius's fame during the 17th century rested especially on his superb knowledge of classical texts, his command of Latin and Greek, and his scholarly works. As the spiritual heir to Scaliger and to some extent to Lipsius, he helped establish Leiden's fame in classical philology, continued by such eminent scholars as... And then there's a long list of important Dutch names, many of which I can't pronounce adequately. <laughs> but I'll give it a try. Vossius, Grenovius, Berman, Hemsterheis, and Rumkane. So then uh, <laughs> Becker Cantorino concludes and says, Heinzius had learned from Scaliger and further developed the treatment of classical texts as literary works. So this is the key point for the whole episode. The treatment of classical texts as literary works not merely editing them in antiquarian fashion with grammatical or lexical observations. He did much more than that, right? He, uh, he went on to write his own. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, so that's yeah. what we're going to try to bring out in this, is okay. that Heinzius is a man who thoroughly appropriated the classical tradition, and then he struck out on his own yeah. and sought to present original compositions, some of which we're going to look at later on in the episode. Excellent. Okay. And I would have thought Erasmus, right? Everybody knows yes. Erasmus. We're going to talk about him. He's the most famous exemplar of the Dutch Renaissance, but there was a whole host of individuals who were deeply involved, not just in theology, which is important to Heinzius's story, but also in all kinds of uh, poetry Yeah. for funerals and weddings and the launch of a new book and uh, involved in the war between the Spanish and the Dutch. Right, right. And Heinzius is in the thick of all of this. Yeah. Not only did he do so many interesting uh, things, he lived in very interesting times. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a, a little bit about what we mean by the Renaissance before we get specifically to, to Heinzius. Absolutely. So it really begins in Italy, and it begins with a man named Petrarch. Francesco Petrarca. He was an Italian, 1304 to 1374. So 1304 is the 14th century. So that's a full 300 years before the time of Heinzius. Right. And uh, what Petrarch was doing was bringing back to light so many of the classical works that had, well, they hadn't laid buried exactly, but they weren't widely accessible. Specifically, when Petrarch rediscovered Cicero's letters, that's often uh, thought of as the turning point for the beginning of the 14th century Italian Renaissance and the founding of Renaissance humanism across Europe uh, wholesale. That's, you know, that's really interesting. I, I'd buy that. Uh, I love those, these little kind of hooks we can hang things on as, as turning points and flashpoints. It just strikes me as you were going through that is that I think when most people think of the Italian Renaissance, they think of... The physical arts. They think yes. of Michelangelo, they think of Leonardo. Mm -hmm. um, Raphael, the three greats. Botticelli. I think Petrarch is still, I wouldn't say it's a, a household name. No, definitely it, not. Which is, a, it's a shame yeah. in some ways. But I think you're right, His that Italian Renaissance um, really begins not with the painting of a fresco, but with the rediscovery of literature. Absolutely. Yeah. Setting the standard for beauty and taste. And the mining of these classical works is what drives the later artists and so forth to try to imitate uh, visually what they had been taught from the literature of antiquity. Right. 
Now, what about the Dutch Renaissance, though? Well, we're not going to get quite there yet. Oh, am I leaping ahead of things? Well, I know, Winkle, that you are yourself of Dutch extract. Yes, yeah, um, and which is, actually, when I was re- doing this reading, it made me a little bit embarrassed about how little I knew about this really? stuff. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Fair but, enough. So, but no, please, take wait, us wait, there. we got to go on a little bit. Okay. So, so drawing on the work of uh, scholars like Erica Rummel, a uh, famous scholar of the Renaissance, Anthony Grafton, who got a mention in a recent episode. He's the author of uh, The History of the Footnote. Uh, and then late scholars like Paul Oscar Christeller and Charles Trinkus. These guys were just amazing in their uh, their productivity, what they wrote. Um, we have to trace the Renaissance not just through Petrarch, but through a man named Lorenzo Valla. Who's this guy? Laurentius Valla. So here is um, another Italian. He was a, a rhetorician, an educator, and a priest. And he's probably most famous for discovering what's called the Donation of Constantine. So this was a document that alleged to be uh, written by Constantine, in which Constantine ceded all of the the lands under control of the Roman Empire, ceded them to the church. Uh, it sounds a little convenient. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? It does. <laughs> so Valla, using uh, textual critical techniques, you know, comparing words and style from his own time, you know, to that of the, the fourth century, the time in which Constantine lived, he proved really beyond the shadow of a doubt that the donation of Constantine was an absolute forgery. Wow, that's we amazing. Have to, we have to devote an episode to that, of course. Uh, but what it does is it really undercuts a lot of the political claims of the papacy at the time. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, man, that's, that's fabulous. You know, so much in, in discovering forgeries today, you know, so much technology is applied to right. it, right? And um, computer analysis, doing this all you know, by hand and by eye. Um, Lucubrations. Lucubrations, By yeah. candlelight. Yeah, unbelievable. Searching around for manuscripts, traveling from library to library. Uh, things were not readily available. And, and even uh, trying to track down a, a, a book. Yeah. Impossible. So Petrarch dies in 1374. He is the one who invented, it seems, and popularized the notion of the Dark Ages. Now, that's kind of fallen out of favor uh, in our day. Right. Yeah, scholars of the medieval period don't like that term. No, no. no. And, and they rightly point out that those living in those times didn't say, you know, we're just a preparation for the Renaissance. Right. These are dark times. What we're doing is not very important, and, and future generations will despise us. Right. Nevertheless, there's a definite qualitative difference in the Latin of that time period, say the High Middle Ages, uh, the Latin of men like Thomas Aquinas and his teacher, Albertus Magnus, and those folks, and going back even further, Peter Lombard, there's a, a definite qualitative difference in their Latin than someone like Petrarch. And the difference has to do with the rediscovery of Cicero and other important classical authors. And that's when Latin begins to pick up speed again? Yes, definitely. Okay. All right. And there is a deliberate effort to go through one's uh, vocabulary and register and to call out, right, to remove non-classical forms and non-classical expressions. Oh, that's very interesting. So if you look in any Latin dictionary, a good one like Lewis and Short, Mm -hmm. oftentimes for a a word you'll find a little reference that says post-class, meaning, you know, post-classical. So the word is a legitimate Latin word, but it's not used after the classical period. Now, when can we date the classical period? Well, you know, you can say the Golden Age with uh, Cicero, Virgil, Livy, and so forth, the Silver Latin and such. Your specialty is in Epileus. Uh, yes. Which is what, 4th century or? Late 2nd century. Late 2nd, okay, so yeah. I'm, I'm off on that. Um, that's really not the classical period. It's getting, it's quite, quite late. Yeah. Um, but between then and the Renaissance, you know, there's the rise of the vulgar languages, the, the Romance languages and such. 
And authors who are using Latin are doing so with a much greater variety than if they had been imitating the classical canon. Ah, yeah. So people like Petrarch and Valla and uh, later on uh, Juan Luis Vives. Who's this guy? <laughs> this guy. Thanks for asking. <laughs> uh, well, his Latinized version, the version of his name. Each of these men took on a Latinized version of their name, of course. So, Johannes Ludovicus Vives. Vives. He was a Catalan, right? Mm-hmm. He was from Spain and uh, ended up in the Netherlands. Um, and he's called the father of modern psychology. At this time, is Netherlands kind of is becoming a academic center. Is that why somebody from Spain is heading north? Well, there was constant conflict between the Netherlands and Spain at this time. Mm. There's a man named Philip II, who's a Habsburg king, and he's trying to gain control of the Netherlands throughout the 16th century. Okay. And Vivas died in 1540, so just before what's called the Dutch Revolt. Uh, and during this time, the Low Countries, right, Flanders, the Flemish, these kinds of places, mm-hmm. they're trying to throw off Spanish rule. And our man, Heinzius, he travels north uh, not long after he was born, which was 1580. And he goes to the northern countries, which are still free, the northern parts of the country, I mean to say, still free of Spanish control and being protected, at least in part, by the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus. So he, as when he was young, his family fled. Correct. Right? Um, because of the, the conflict. Correct. Okay. So there's one more name. Okay. A name to reckon with. And that would be uh, a one Erasmus. Yes. Desiderius Erasmus. Rotterdamus. Rotterdam. Where was he from? Rotterdam. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, what's so special about this guy, though? Ah, well, he earned the title, right? The uh, sobriquet, the Prince of the Humanists. Oh, oh really? And not an easy title to get. It strikes me that, you know, Erasmus is, of this list of names, he's the one that jumps out at me. Absolutely the most well-known of all of them. And if you were doing just kind of a Cliffsnotes version of this of this era, he's probably the one guy they would include. Yes. Right? Born, born in 1466, mm-hmm. a Dutchman. Died in 1536, so he lived to the ripe age of 70. Uh, People know him primarily because of his conflict with Martin Luther. And uh, in 1516, he publishes his first edition of Annotations on the New Testament. So he takes the New Testament and he gives the Greek version and he translates it into a Latin that's not the Vulgate. Ah. And uh, we have to do at least one episode on this. This is an area of my own research and hopefully scholarship soon. And um, Erasmus is really crucial. Uh, to the entire 16th century. And Heinzius and these other men, they're modeling themselves after Erasmus. Okay, okay. Um, as were others in the 16th century, many. Uh, so Luther is in conflict with Erasmus, and Erasmus really sets the standard. He's the high watermark of classical scholarship. And uh, interestingly, he comes in against the Ciceronians. So by the time of Erasmus, he's reacting a little bit to guys like Petrarch and Valla and Vivas, who are imitating Cicero, Erasmus would say, um, to an extreme. Enough of that Ciceronianism. So where does he want to see things go? Erasmus? Why is that a problem, too much Cicero? Because it's just, um, it's a kind of slavish imitation. You know, you you memorize a few of his speeches, Mm. you study his philosophy, and then everything sounds like um, a forged Cicero. So here's the problem with forgery. I don't remember what I was reading recently, but perhaps it'll occur to me in the, in the course of this conversation. The trouble with a forgery is that you always have to imitate the most common elements, the elements that everybody knows about your model. And so it's impossible to make it look natural. Ah, okay, okay. Now what about Erasmus as a, as a stylist himself? What's the judgment? 
Right. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not an expert in Erasmus, but you know, but this is this is I'm kind on of the podcast. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, you you you've translated I have. Latin from this era, and I've translated some Erasmus, okay. and I've read his biography, and I'm trying to be a good student, and so forth. Yeah. So um, Erasmus could write in all registers. Okay. And he could write beautiful Ciceronian Latin. He could write in the style of Seneca or some of the other um, authors of the classical era. Mm-hmm. So he shares with the earlier men. Petrarch, Vela, and so forth. The return to the sources. Ad fontes, after all. Mm-hmm. Ad fontes amus. Let's get back to the sources. This is his rallying cry. But he says, you have to fully appropriate the author and represent his style as your own. Not just like you're going through a handbook of how to sound like Cicero. Gotcha. Right. Maybe we can find an analogy. Well, I, it, I, The I, cover band as opposed to the... What am I looking for here? The cover band starts to do a few of its originals like during, a, during a set. That, yeah, but trying to think of there's a special... Like, what's the term for a reinterpretation? It's not a mashup, but mm-hmm. it's... Um, do you know what I'm after? Yeah, I know. So, somebody who's, who takes a, uh, a classic song... But does their own reinterprets it, reinterprets it, and and, uh, and does it well, which is very difficult. You to know do. the monkeys. I do know the monkeys. Okay, so yeah. they had the song "I'm a Believer." Yes, right. Smash Mouth. Yeah, did a cover of that. Yes, and I think it was uh, pretty... awful. <laughs> <laughs> that's the only song by them that I know, uh-huh. and I didn't think it was too bad. Okay, no, that's it's a it's a pretty, but it's a pretty by the numbers cover, right? Apparently the Michiganders, uh, Greta Van Fleet, yes. are trying to sound like Led Zeppelin. Yes. And do they succeed? Uh, I mean, that's a that's a much larger conversation. No, I would, it isn't. I, I would, just need a yes or no would, answer. Okay, We're talking about Erasmus. Okay, no. They don't succeed. They do not succeed. Okay, yes. fair. Their intentions are, are pure, but no. I'm okay. sorry, Greta. <laughs> what you need to do, Erasmus would say, mm-hmm. is yes, learn Cicero, but become your own stylist. Can I throw in another metaphor? Please. Okay. So where I live, there is a Frank Lloyd Wright house uh, mm. called the Meyer May House, mm-hmm. which was designed in full by the man himself. And just a block over, there's another Frank Lloyd Wright house, which doesn't have a fancy name. But I know from just neighborhood lore and, and other things I've read is that it was designed by one of his his uh, acolytes. And it shows? It Well, it does. You can tell it's Frank Lloyd just at a glance. It's got the, you know, the cantilevered you know, flatness to it. But it's also very different and you can tell this this kid is trying to strike out on his own or at least get his master's stuff wrong hmm. so he's, but he's, that would be success because it's not a slavish kind of imitation right right a to a b to b right. c to c yeah that's so, not, that's what you don't want to do exactly so i think that uh the way i see this uh his student's building his student's house is kind of what erasmus was going for mm-hmm. you're going back to you're going back to the source but you're also kind of expanding it and doing your own thing with it. Yes. It's breathing. Exactly. Yeah. So he's he's famous for the laus stultitii, right? The moriae encomium, the praise of folly. Mm. And uh, Heinzius will write uh, his own take on this, as we'll learn eventually. But Erasmus is the high watermark of northern Renaissance humanism. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we have two more individuals to mention Okay. in this brief sketch of... The Renaissance and how it comes to the Netherlands. Okay. Who else we got? We got Joseph Justice Scaliger. Okay. Who's this guy? So he was born four years after the death of Erasmus. Okay. He was a French Calvinist religious leader. He was the one who was responsible for really expanding the horizons, you might say, of what it meant to study the classics. So not just Greece and Rome, but a lot of the Eastern cultures, the Babylonians, the Persians, Egyptian history, 
uh, Jewish history, and uh, he, he was trying to bring all of these things to bear on the study of the classics. That kicks against what I, I think long assumed what was happening at this time. I, I think my, my sense of with these guys, that it was much more narrowly focused, mm-hmm. and it was a lot stuffier than it actually appears to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, hats off to, to Mr. Scaliger. Here. Well, yeah, and this was the time that the Orientalizing movement began, where men are trying to study, you know, Assyrian languages and, and uh, all of the Eastern languages and so forth. Now, do you know if, is this happening in uh, in Italy at all? Or is this, is, is that, that kind of stuff only really happening up in these Northern? I don't really have an answer to that. Okay. I'm, I know it, that this, I know that the study of Hebrew uh, was popular in parts of Italy. Okay. So one famous example is a man named Peter Martyr Vermigli, who was a Florentine and uh, he, he fled Italy he was down in um, Naples in 1536. Okay. He fled Italy in 1542, went over the Alps, went to Zurich. Uh, oh, wow. Because yeah. he eventually went to Oxford, where he was a Greek scholar there. So he knew Hebrew. And the study of Hebrew was very popular in, in parts of Italy. But, you know, these are really vexing times religiously. And so mm-hmm. there's conflict and turmoil, not just about the conclusions that you draw, you know, uh, Catholics versus Protestants, but the kinds of things you're studying. Right. I just want to get your opinion on something. Most of my study of the what I know about the Dutch Renaissance or the Northern Renaissance has to do with the kind of the physical arts, and so it's you know the theology and the writing, the literature. I'm not so learned on, but one of the things that I've taken away from this is that the further away you get from Rome, you're kind of under the watchful eye of the papacy. There, there's a lot. Seems to be a lot more kind of freedom to let these kind of debates rage and back and forth without kind of that immediate threat of a clamp down just because of the physical geographical distance. I mean, does that, does that ring true with you at all? I think there's definitely the ring of truth to that. I would phrase it maybe a little bit differently, and that is to say that because the Reformation never really came to Italy, there were political interests in the North to protect the reformers and, mm-hmm. and men who were officially on the outs and women with the Catholic Church. Okay, and so because the Reformation never really took hold in uh, Italy, right. you couldn't really say the same kinds of things. Now there was a very important printing industry in Venice, and there were a lot of uh, reformed-leaning books being printed in Venice and distributed north throughout Europe, but um, there weren't Protestant churches uh, distributed throughout Italy. So the of conflict, course. the conflict in the north raged on. And often there were Catholics and Protestants rubbing shoulders with one another. Mm, mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that's really what, what you're seeing and what you're expressing um, through your question. Okay, yeah, yeah, great. So Joseph Justice Scaliger, a very important scholar, spent the last decade and a half of his life in the Netherlands, died in 1609. And uh, he took Heinzius under his wing uh, as his student, his protege. And um, Heinzius inherited a large part of his library, in fact, and uh, gave him his start. Great. And then we have one more guy. Yes, Justus Lipsius. Okay. You want to give the Dutch version of his name? Just Lips. Just Lips. That's right. <laughs> Born uh, October 1547, so a little bit younger than Scaliger. And uh, this makes him about, I don't know, 33 years younger than Heinzius. Died in 1606. So uh, he was Flemish and a philologist, philosopher. Um, his specialty was Stoicism. And uh, although he was Catholic, and so he and Heinzius had a different confession, uh, he was another brilliant classical scholar and uh, had this tremendous expertise in Stoicism. Most famous work is De Constantia on constancy. And I don't know about you, Jeff, but every time I hear this, I think of the Reverend Lovejoy. (laughs) 
Do you remember uh, one of his many sermons? It's on the tip of my tongue. You got to say constancy. <laughs> uh, that's one of uh, the favorite tropes of uh, Tim Lovejoy. <laughs> so both of these guys, Scaliger and Lipsius, uh, were immediate influences and mentors to Heinzius. Absolutely. Okay. And the latter of them, Lipsius, taught at Jena, Leiden, and Leuven. Okay. And uh, Heinzius associated with Leiden for the bulk of his career, right? Correct. Yeah. And we're going to get a little bit of Dutch poetry about Leiden. Ooh, exciting. Coming up very soon. Um, but let's get started on his biography. Okay, what, what, can, what do we know about Heinzius? Um, we, he, he was born in 1580 mm-hmm. and died in 1655. That's a, that's a decent life. It's a pretty long life. For, the, for 70, this time. 75 this years? Right, right. Do you hope to live that long? I, I hope so. Yes? For some days I, I feel I'll be lucky to get to squeeze out another five. Really? <laughs> <laughs> is it the podcast that's shortening your life? It is, the, yeah. The lucubrations, the intensity. It is, yeah. The graying of the hair, the losing of the hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So born in 1580, mm-hmm. and this is five years after the University of Leiden was founded. Okay. So it's a Dutch Renaissance university dedicated to the study of theology and dedicated to Calvinism, actually. Okay. So Calvin and his thought, right, uh, had taken hold in this part of the Netherlands at Leiden, and this very famous university then is established there. Okay. Now, a fellow that I worked on before, a man named Franciscus Junius, yes, uh, was appointed to the position of theologian there at Leiden, and another fellow came out from there as well, uh, a guy named Jacob Arminius, uh, was at Leiden, actually. And this, these would be guys that are after... Heinzius. No, these are before Heinzius. Before Heinzius? Yes, before Heinzius. So uh, Heinzius was five years old when the university was founded in 1575, just to keep the chronology a little straight. And um, Junius died in 1602, which was when uh, Heinzius would have been just 22 years old. Gotcha. Okay. So their careers overlapped just a little bit. Arminius died a couple years later, and this led to great conflict in the Netherlands. It did? Oh, yes. Between the remonstrance and the (laughs) anti-remonstrance. Did it get ugly? The contra-remonstrance. It got ugly. And uh, Heinzius was on the side of the counter or the contra-remonstrance. Okay. Well, now, what exactly does that mean? <laughs> We're going to get a little deep here. Okay. Do it's, it. It's on the question of Calvinism. Okay. Right? So the Orthodox Calvinist position was defended by a man named Franciscus Gomar, Gomarius. And uh, it was the notion that God's justice and his decrees determine who receives salvation and who does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jacob Arminius, Jakob Harmanzun, uh, who died in the first decade of the 17th century, um, he published some theses which said, no, that's not quite right. And actually, there's quite a bit more human freedom, and salvation is based upon foreseen faith. Okay. So he dies, um, Arminius does, before the conflict really heats up. But it comes to a head in 1619, and that's when the Synod of Dort meets. And our guy Heinzius was one of the important secretaries at the Synod of Dort. Okay. So his job was to keep track of everything, uh, writing it in Latin, communicating with churches and laymen all around Europe, and um, he strongly took the side of the Orthodox, of the Gomarists, you might say. Gotcha. Okay. But we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, and that's really not the, the focus of this episode. It's a subject interesting to me. I don't know if we'll ever focus on uh, this for an entire episode. But Heinzius was in the thick of things. Okay. Now, what else about his his early life and education, the stuff that leads up to his career at Leiden? Right. Uh, maybe we should talk about that after the break. What do you think? Sounds good. Okay, let's do it. Mm-hmm. 
This episode is brought to you by Racial Coffee of Portland, Oregon. The brainchild of Mr. Mark Helwig, the Racial 6 and the Racial 8 are these beautiful automatic pour-over coffee machines. Why should you spend top dollar at some downtown brew-based barn and beanery? You, you shouldn't. You shouldn't. No. You can make better coffee, Jeff? Better coffee. Better coffee by at far. home on yep. your own countertop. Let's tell the audience about the Ratio 6. The Ratio 6, that's the machine I have. It sits there like a work of art on my countertop, puts the other appliances to shame. Uh, you hit the button, it goes into the bloom stage, it banishes all the nasty CO2. Uh, the pour-over system uh, pours the uh, the water over the beans. It's into got a Fibonacci head, right? Fibonacci head. Coming down through 200 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a beautiful thing. Yep. And then it goes down into the carafe. Into the carafe. And there's no nasty burner uh, keeping things warm there. The no ca- scorch pad underneath. No scorch pad. The carafe keeps everything warm for a, a really long time. Yeah, I have a confession to make. Please. I have forgotten what burnt coffee tastes like. Oh, man. I used to know the taste real well, and I'd sometimes even just reheat it from desperation. Yeah. No more. No now, more. Now it's all ratio eight for me. Excellent. Excellent. Well, Dave, what, what can our listeners, how can, they, how can they benefit? Well, ad nauseum Java files, go to ratiocoffee.com, R-A-T-I-O coffee.com, and enter the special coupon code. You can get 15% off the ratio six. That coupon code is A-N-C-O. That's A-N-C-O for 15% off the ratio six. Check it out. This week's episode is also brought to you by Ad Astra Coffee, the coffee that takes you to the stars, but doing an end run around all that nasty pear aspera stuff. Yes, Jeff, we are thrilled to have Ad Astra Roasters on board here at the Vomitorium supporting our little podcast. What do you think about the coffees they offer? Oh, great stuff. Um, in, in fact, uh, I've I honestly say I've not had better coffee in my life. No, I don't think I have either. No. To be honest with you. And I've been to some great coffee places like Naples and London. I've had some good coffee. This stuff is primo. It is. It is. Um, I think recently we both tried the Huehuetenango yes. uh, roast. Excellent. Cinnamony, a little bit of nutmeg flavor in it, and a deep undertone of just a earthy coffee goodness. Great stuff. Uh, another one of my favorites is the Tenebris. Yes, the Dark Shadows of Coffee. They have a poetry series, am I right? They do. Uh, on the bag, you can read uh, as you grind the beans, as you wait for your your ratio machine to to put it into the carafe, you can read uh, uh, wonderful lines of poetry. Wordsworth. Wordsworth, Rilke. Yes. Yeah, it's all there. So they've been roasting beans for years, and they have this wonderful large machine that does all the fancy roasting. It's the it's the repurposed uh, bed drum roaster. Is that? I a- think that's what it is. Yep. Yeah. And uh, how can our listeners score themselves some of this delicious coffee that we've been enjoying? All they got to do is go to oddastraroasters.com. A-D-A-S-T-R-A roasters.com and check out what they have to offer. Uh, you get a special 10% off any order by entering A-N-A-A into the coupon code box and you can also sign up for a monthly subscription. What was that code again? That was A-N-A-A. Check it out. Today's episode is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing based in Indianapolis, Indiana and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Hackett has been bringing wonderful resources to a classical readership since 1972. Jeff, what do you like about Hackett's offerings? First thing I like about them is their the cover art. Um, I love the way they draw you in with really clever contemporary photos that, that mirror or kind of harken back to the themes of, of the stuff between the pages. My favorite, as we've talked about, is the portrait of Elvis Presley on the front of their translation of Euripides Bacchae. Just really, really clever. But then once you open the book, 
It's readable, digestible, approachable translations for any level reader. Yes, we just went through our Odyssey series Mm -hmm. featuring the work of the the brilliant Stanley Lombardo. What a great translation that is. It is. I use it in all my myth classes, Mm -hmm. and students uh, across the board love it. And they're coming out with a new translation of the Aeneid by Len Krizak. They have uh, their Aristotle series. It's wonderful stuff. So what can our listeners do to really cash in on the generosity that Hackett has shown to this podcast? Well, they can save 20% on any order. Oh, hold on a minute. Yes. 20%? 20%. That's not all. That's sizable. It's sizable and free shipping uh, from any order from Hackett Publishing. All they got to do... Hold, hold on a minute uh, Yeah, yeah. Okay, what do you got? What? 20% and free shipping? Both of those things. That's incredible. Yeah, it's not one or the other. It's both? It's both. Shall I let you finish? Yes, please do. So go to hackitpublishing.com, H-A-C-K-E-T-T, publishing.com, and in the coupon code box, type in A-N-2021 and get that wonderful offer right now. All right, so as we get back into this, uh, we've got a little more to cover with in terms of Heinze's early life and his education. Yes, and we're going to rely again on Becker Contarino, okay. Barbara Becker Contarino, who in this wonderful book gives us this great chronology of the man. Okay. So we're just going to shamelessly rely on it, right? Yeah, take it okay, away. Here we yeah. go. So born in 1580, as you know, he traveled north from Ghent. So Ghent is in the southern part of the Netherlands, and later on he took on this really interesting pen name. Theocritus Gondius. Theocritus is a, uh, a Greek translation of Daniel. Exactly. Right? Okay. So his first name is Daniel. Theocritus means um, judged by God, mm-hmm. something like that. And I, apparently, Danielle means the same thing. So, so the first name, Theocritus, like you said, and then Gondius means from Ghent. Okay. So he wrote under a pseudonym. I guess you have to do this when you're that prolific. I don't have any pseudonyms yet. you have any pseudonyms? I don't. Um, I'd, it'd be fun to come up with one, though. I have a couple... Potential? We are you willing to share? Sure. Well, John Rollerball. John Rollerball. Rollerball. You see, it's, <laughs> it's a pen name. Another one I've been working on is. Oh no! A, oh no! You don't want to hear this. No, I do, but you know, Penford Plume, right? <laughs> I'd read anything Penford wrote. I, <laughs> That's a pretty good name. That is pretty good. Penford Plume, right? But uh, but okay. oh, I got a third one. Oh, okay, please, Thomas Bick. <laughs> They're pen names. They are, they're pen names, yes. Okay. I think, I think we, we, we right, get that, yeah. All right. But it reminds me of like Stephen King. Exactly. Right, who writes books in his sleep. Right. He had to write under Richard Bachman. I didn't know that. For a while, the Bachman books. The be- Bachman books. Because he was cranking these things out so quickly, he was afraid people yeah, would say... they would just dismiss it. Exactly. Did Bachman write Turner Overdrive? <laughs> Unrelated. Okay. Unrelated, yes. Well, that's how little I know. Okay. So born in 1580, Mm -hmm. and uh, his family flees to the north from Ghent, and then he he becomes friends with a man named Hugo Grotius. Why is that important? Uh, Well, because Grotius is more famous than Heinzius. Okay. G-R-O-T-I-U-S, Grotius. And he was on the other side of this big theological divide. Oh, okay. He was a remonstrant, and not a contra-remonstrant like Heinzius, and he was actually uh, condemned to death. And then exiled, and his wife rescued him. So it's a lot of high drama. And uh, they were good friends. And in fact, Heinzius was the best man at Grotius's wedding. Really? Now, that, that crossing of those theological lines, that had to have been rare. Or, or well, may, maybe not so much? Or? This was before... This was before the, the conflict really became pointed at okay. Dort, 1618, 1619. Okay. 
So the theological controversy ripped people apart in terms of their friendships. Now, oh. some of these guys were able to maintain um, a fair amount of charity toward one another, but there wasn't public interaction after the split. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, I, I remember uh, from the book, his his father wanted him to be a lawyer. Oh, yes. This is standard. You remember Ovid's father yeah. wanted him to be a Th- lawyer. That's exactly what he reminded <laughs> me of, right. And Ovid said, no way. No, no. And, but it's when Henzius kind of, he discovered his talent for the, for the languages that things took a, a different turn. He right? took off, right. Yep. So uh, Joseph Scaliger arrives in Leiden in 1592. And uh, in 96, for two years, maybe three years, Heinzius is studying law at the Franeker Academy. Oh, and he was so bored. He wanted to get out of that fast. Oh, man. Sounds awful. Have you ever been interested in studying law? Never. Never. Have you ever watched Law and Order? Uh, I have. I enjoy Law and Order. Okay, which part, the law or the order? I I I'm, I, I like the more the kind of the disorder that leads up to the law than okay. the order. Yeah, fair enough. Then in 1599, when the law career is not going well, his father, uh, as Contarino says, he's recalled by his father for lack of progress. Well, because he wasn't interested at all. No, you can't succeed at something you don't love. That's right. But then, in 1600, goes back to Leiden to study the classical languages, and then his uh, career takes off. He had this preternatural gift for languages. He was just amazing, apparently. And he comes under the wing of Joseph Scaliger, you know, the leading light in Leiden right. at the time for classical studies. And he comes out with his first edition, that is the um, Second Punic War, of a, a lesser-known epicist named Silius Italicus. Right. You probably read about him in grad school. I did. Silver Latin, I was told that uh, he's no Virgil, and uh, that's about all I knew about him. <laughs> right. No Virgil. Now, what, what year is this? How old is... Uh... This is 1600, so he's 20 years old. Oh, just 20. Amazing. Right. Okay. Well, I often wonder, why were the men of this time period uh, so accomplished, so young? And I think that there's two reasons. The one is, we maybe talked about this with Perkins. I can't remember that episode, but I think the two reasons are they didn't study broadly. Mm. So, you know, a typical school curriculum today half a dozen or more subjects, six or seven, all these men studied was Greek and Latin. Now, they read a lot of other things. You know, they studied different subjects within those languages. So you'd, you'd study history and science, but it was all done in either Latin or Greek. Mm-hmm. So that intense focus is one reason yep. that they had such early success. The other reason is that uh, not everyone was as good as Heinzius. Right? Ah. So we're reading the, the cream of the crop the flos lactis, as they would say in Latin. Right, right. Because where does it go from there? Well, he publishes his first collection of emblems. Now, these are like, um, this, these are really interesting. I thought you would pick up on this in our prep work, and maybe you did, but um, there's a part of the book which talks about the fact that illustrations and images were really important at the end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of comic books. So there was a picture, often a woodcut or some kind of engraving, showing Cupid in some you know, striking pose, shooting someone or, you know, moving behind cover. And then there would be a caption. There'd be some poetry underneath that would describe um, what Cupid's doing. And so he wrote all of these emblemata, these emblem captions to illustrate, you know, these interesting scenes. Yeah, yeah. So the first collection of emblems that he publishes is in 1601, and it's entitled Quiris Quid Sit Amor, which means, do you want to know what love is? So that, that's the foreigner song, right? Exactly. I want to know what love is. Exactly. Yeah, would you sing a little for us? No. Okay, all right. <laughs> Will you? No, I'm not ready. Okay. Too late. But it's striking, isn't it? How little has changed in 400 years? Yeah. 
he is what twenty one years old now in sixteen oh one, and he wants to know what love is. Yeah, was I mean, was he writing crappy love poetry like I was in my dorm no, room? No, 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 no. Was good he stuff. Was writing brilliant okay. stuff. Okay. Oh man. I mean, everyone you know can write poetry of some sort. I was writing pretty bad poetry also when I was that oh, age. Oh yes, I, a lot of us were deeply introspective, you know, <laughs> pining over girls and so forth. Yes. But he's writing beautiful, uh, elegiac couplets, flawless latinity. It's it's phenomenal. Then he writes a tragedy about William of Orange. At, how old is he now? He's writing a tragedy. He's 22. Okay. It's called the Ariacus Siwa Libertas Saukia. Okay. William or Wounded Liberty. Mm. And these are about events of the war between the Dutch, the Netherlands, and Spain. And how this William of Orange was assassinated. So he writes a tragedy on the subject when he's 22 years old. And then he gets an appointment as Professor Extraordinarius, which means out of the normal rank, right? The position was created for him, and he keeps churning out these elegies. Now, is this part of his academic work, or is this like is this stuff he's, he's doing in his spare time? A little of both. Okay. He is consumed by this uh, literary production. Uh-huh. Before we go on to look at some really interesting particular examples, I think we should here introduce this quote. We have a guest reader, don't we? We do. Our guest reader is uh, Aaron Overkirk. I think that's how he pronounced it, yeah. Yeah, he's a graduate student at the University of Utrecht, and he has graciously uh, agreed to read some Dutch poetry for us. All right, roll the tape. De regen en de wind gekomen hier tot Leiden, heb ik naar u gevraagd, u arme martelaar. Ziek zijnd om uwentwil, ik hebbe moeten beiden van u te spreken aan, en ben gegaan vandaar. Ellendig, zonder hoop, vol pijn, vol smert, vol lijden. Vol troefheid in de geest, vol jammerlijk verdriet. Wow, that's really incredible. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, thank you so much. So the translation goes like this. Through rain and wind I have come here to Leiden and have asked for you. As your poor martyr, sick because of you, I had to wait to address you, and I left in misery, without hope, full of pain, of sorrow, of suffering, of gloom in my heart, full of miserable dejection. Wow, that's pretty downtrodden. Yes, it is. <laughs> I, before we give a little bit of an explanation, and I'd like to note that this is not my translation. I can't translate 17th century Dutch. This is uh, Becker Contarino, the scholar whom we're following. Mm-hmm. And I'd just like to point out that um, I think this is the first time that Dutch 17th century poetry has been read on a podcast. It's got to be. I would think so. I would think that's a, a definite first. So, so what do you think, Winkle? Are, yeah. we, are we going too niche? With this Dutch poetry? Or yeah, the, or whole, ev- the whole thing in this episode. I think, if anything, it's not niche enough. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, I looked at some of our stats, and um, our listenership in, in Holland, in the Netherlands, is, is, is kind of saddeningly low. It's a little lackluster. It's, lo- it's as low as the, the lowlands... In the, <laughs> that's terrible. Um, but this is a way to kind of zero in and hit that, hit that target audience. No, but seriously, why should this be interesting to the listener? Well, I think that, um, I think one of the things that uh, this podcast that we do is um, we cover the Odyssey. But you can find hundreds of podcasts that cover the Odyssey. But one of the interesting things we do here is really zoom in on stuff that very few people know anything about. Including ourselves before we got started. Exactly right. And then connecting it to these larger issues and and uh, themes in the classics right. that threads this all together. Yeah, well said. Yeah. All right, Dave, so wrap up his biography for us. Okay, so we're going to go through the rest of this pretty quick because we want to get to some examples of his poetry. Some more examples. Yep. 1605, he's appointed Professor Extraordinarius of Greek. 
So not only can he, uh, can he just really wow us with Latin, his Greek's extraordinary also. Wow. He's appointed university librarian. Uh, Scaliger recommends him that 1607 becomes secretary of the academic senate, which means he got to attend all the meetings. Oh, wow. Got first pick of the donuts. What a prize. Yeah, you, no, no doubt. <laughs> he publishes on Aristotle's Poetics in uh, 1610, uh, releases all of this Dutch poetry in 1616. So now he's 36. He's really hit his stride r- right in the middle of his career. And was it with the Poetics, it's, it's really his... His uh, kind of rearranging of, of the text that we we understand or is taken to be kind of standard today. Right? Yes. Yeah. Well, and he did the same thing with Horace. He reworked a lot of the uh, the Ars Poetica of Horace, mm. moving lines around to make it a a functional whole. Yeah. Because he had some criticisms, not of the individual lines, but of their placement, and yeah. he thought that maybe they had been put together in the wrong way, not by Horace, but by some editor. Right. So the point that the book makes, which to me is so fascinating, is that. Not only can he, you know, speak and think and write Latin and Greek in his sleep, but he's engaging with the tradition critically. Going back to our earlier theme, mm-hmm. these are not covers, right? This is a creative appropriation and representation of what he's learned. Exactly. It's very difficult to do. Okay, then we fast forward to 1618, 1619. He's at the Synod of Dort. And uh, in some ways surprising because the, the contra-remonstrants, right, the Orthodox Calvinists, they have the reputation for being, you know, uh, buttoned up, kind of straight-laced. Yeah. Because their theological position can seem uh, rigorous and even offensive to many. But Heinzius chooses this side out of conviction. The same guy who wrote the poem, I Want to Know What Love Is. Yeah. Right? Quirus quid That amor. was the thing I found most fascinating about yes. him. Yes. Yeah. These are not one-sided, uh, narrow-minded individuals, I would say. These, these are men of culture and learning with surprising turns. Now, his brother-in-law um, was a guy named Janus Rutgers, and he was the Swedish ambassador to the Dutch Republic, and uh, he died in 1625. So right about this time, I mentioned this because not only was Heinzius important in the Netherlands, but through his marriage to a, um, a Swedish woman, he was constantly trying to get Gustavus Adolphus, the Swedish king, to, oh, yeah. to intervene on the side of the Dutch, to come down and beat back the Spanish. Come down and help us. Come down and help us. So he was also involved in international politics. Yes, not as a man of action, but through his literature, he tried to uphold both the cause of Orthodox Calvinism Hmm. and the fortunes of the Dutch people. You know, not with a lot of success, uh, but this was what he was was always striving for. So we got to get down to the end here of his life, that is. He continued publishing, uh, you know, literature and uh, eventually theology in 1639, extensive notes on the New Testament. And uh, the last Dutch poetry comes out in 1650. Okay. That's his last edition. And uh, apparently the last decade, you know, the reader can find this in the book, although the book's scarce. The last decade of his life, he suffered from some dementia. And um, it's really kind of sad how he began to deteriorate. Um, but he died in 1655 on February 26. So that brings us down to the end of his biography. All right. Well, let's get into some specifics of his work. Okay, so we got that little sample of Dutch poetry. Mm-hmm. He also wrote a hymn to Bacchus, the god of wine. Now, how does a Calvinist get away with that? You don't think Calvinists like wine? Well, they, they do, but uh, writing a hymn to a pagan deity? Well, he had to reinterpret it. Okay. And he interpreted it along these lines. Um, wine is one of God's good gifts that alleviate some of the misery of life. Huh. Life is a veil of tears, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
humanum est supplicium, you know, human life, or humanum vitae est supplicium, human life is suffering, and that wine alleviates that. So he never, um, the author makes this point quite well, he never surrenders his theological and moral convictions when dealing with this topic. But unlike uh, some of his opponents, he doesn't shy away from embracing uh, life in all of its aspects. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a difficult needle to thread, you might say. It is. I, one of the things, things I found fascinating about his work was the way that he kind of threaded his own theological beliefs together with these pre-Christian ideas and uh, you know, gods and goddesses, mythologies and poetical themes. Yep. And it was, yeah, seamless. Very successful. Yeah. He also wrote a, a hymn to Jesus Christ that was also in Dutch. But we're going to deal with his Latin works, right? Yes. And we're going to talk about um, his De Contemptu Mortis. So this is written in Dactylic Hexameter, and the title means uh, How to Despise Death, right? De Contemptu Mortis. Mm -hmm. So it's written in four books, and it's based, this is fascinating, it's based on the didactic poetry of Virgil, namely his Georgics. So four books of the Georgics written, um, I think it was published in 29 Sounds uh, right. Yeah, so we, we talked about the eclogues, remember in that episode? Yeah. Cowboy Up Verge. The Georgics are his um, his agricultural poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, in there, he talks about, you know, how to tend the flocks, how to care for the trees in the orchards, the bees, and all that kind of stuff. A lot of stuff about bees. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Heinzius, in a brilliant move, says, well, I'm going to teach people not how to be a farmer. I'm going to teach people how to overcome their fear of death. Yeah. And I'm going to base it on Virgil's... Georgics, four books. And I th what I thought was so interesting about this is, as our uh, biographer points out, is that what a huge turn this was in terms of uh, a, kind of a Christian view of death. Yes. Uh, she talks about how, um, I think under uh, Augustine, uh, looking at death as kind of a, a punishment for, yes. for sin, right? And he takes a much more kind of almost Greek Socratean view of, of death, right? Yes, I think that's fair to say. I thought that that point was a point where the book could possibly be critiqued. Um, we don't really have time to do that, but I could think... Could you say a little bit? Well, with, yeah, with, okay. I, think, I think both elements are present in the Christian tradition and its view of death. Mm -hmm. Death is both a punishment for sin and for the believer. It is the entrance into eternal life. Yeah. Right? It's that last tight spot you squeeze through, right? Yeah. And you're reborn on the other side, a new person. Right. And I think that Heinzius is stressing that latter part. Okay, yeah. Born yeah. out of his sense of theological joy, really, rather than, you know, death is just a punishment. Kind right. Of. Or it's, it's, yeah, it's not something to be dreaded or feared. No, right? no. Because I think those elements um, that Heinzius brings out, I think they're present in earlier authors, but mm. it's a matter of emphasis. Okay. As they say. Yes. So I want to read just a couple of lines of the poetry here, uh, if I can. Please. So, quid mente repiat tenebris quid pectoralatum. Sel mors sponta vocat saute lad versa minantur. Eximat a tonatis animas qua scribat olimpo. So hexameters like the Georgics. Hexameters, yes. right. And uh, I'm sure everyone is listening carefully, but they heard things like, um, what rescues the mind from shadows? Quid mente ripiat tenebris. Uh, what rescues uh, death or pulls death, latum, out of the heart, out of the breast? Uh, whether death calls us of its own accord or uh, the the threatening shafts, right? The tela adversa or the, the hostile shafts threaten us. So just like the beginning of the Georgics, he's going through, these are the themes. And the third line ends with Olimpo, right? 
Olympus. Yeah. What's this doing in a Christian poem on death? Right, 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 right. It's that, again, it's that kind of all things captive to to, to Christ. Yes. Um, that's kind of, that's so deeply embedded in the Reformed tradition. Right. right? So he can take the, the Mount Olympus concept and he can reconfigure it and do with it whatever he wants. Yeah. And Heinzius does this throughout his um, his life's work. Yeah, it's crazy. It, it, it looks and sounds like Virgil. Oh, it's very good Latin. Yeah. I mean, I'd give anything to be able to write hexameters like this. In Incredible. Latin. Yeah. And uh, maybe some someday we'll do an entire episode on this contempt of death because it's a fascinating poem. Now, he wrote in other meters as well, right? Yes. In addition to the hexameters, he wrote in the elegiac couplet, which of course is... Uh, like Ovid. Yeah, Ovid's meter. So we have a little selection here of elegy number eight, which is addressed to a rival, right? An unnamed rival. An unnamed rival. Okay. So this is a young man who was in love with Heinzius's beloved. Yes. How dare he? So he, he wishes that he had Jesse's girl. <laughs> I guess. All right. <laughs> well, who is that? Uh, that's Rick Springfield. Oh, thank Come you. Come on. Oh, what right. can I say? Dike bam de systemeos in water amores. Dike bam isero parca no queira mihi. Nunc te biquam sentis when eris gravas ira luendest. Nunc te bisinesquis impetus ela no cat. It sounds impassioned. It does. I mean, those kind of those staccato lines. Right. Nunc tibi, nunc tibi. Right. Yeah. And the decay bomb, decay bomb. Right? Yeah. I kept saying, this is just a rough translation. I kept saying, right, stop uh, encroaching on my territory, right? Don't invade my loves. I kept saying it, uh, don't harm poor me, right? Parkinokera misero mihi. Now I say to you, as you feel, that the hard penalty, the grawasira, the hard penalty of love must be atoned for. So here he's got this emotion, uh, this impassioned kind of rebuke of his rival, right? yeah. who's after the girl that he likes. Yeah. What, what classic scholar, what theologian does this? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully all of them, because it's interesting. It is interesting, right? He's a young man, and um, he has a woman, right, to whom this poetry is addressed. It was, a, it was Rossa. Rossa, Rossa right. right. And the scholar, Becker Contarino, I think she translates this as sandy-haired girl. That's no good. No, what do you think? Uh, more blondie. Yeah, I think blondie would do it, given the fact that they're Dutch. They're Dutch. Right? And uh, so he's imitating here Catullus with his lesbia. Right. And uh, each of the poets, right, Propertius, Tabullus, Ovid has Corinna. They each have a fictitious woman to whom these poems are addressed. Right. And then you got to take down the rival. Dike bomb de systemeos in water amores. Yeah. Stay off my lawn. <laughs> That's right. My love lawn. It reminds me a lot of um, you know, what's going on in, in England, too. Shakespeare is writing his sonnets roughly around the same time, mm -hmm. doing the same kind of things. Yeah, but he wrote in English. He, he wrote, but he's also, but he's... He's doing the same thing that Catullus is doing. He's using um, kind of shrouded language to possibly refer to some mysterious lover. So, right. But um, so and writing tragedies too. So I, I just wanted to. Yeah, point but out, in English. In, in English, not in Latin, which oh. is so beautiful. All right. So we, I need to stop talking about Shakespeare. No, um, no, no. Go okay. ahead. No, no. I'm done. It's I'm an done. excellent point. I just wanted to point out there's some parallel okay. things going on. All right. Across the channel. Now, he writes another elegy, the following elegy, number nine, on the occasion of Ovid's birthday, right? Yes. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. Read a little, would you? Yeah, sure. So um, before I do, yeah. right, Petrarch has a number of imagined letters, including one famous one that he wrote to Cicero. It's a little bit whiny. It's a little bit complaining, <laughs> you know. But Heinzius picks up this thing, and he's going to write a poem now in celebration of Ovid's birthday. Ante duos fulvi vectorem welleris ortus, solariet medio nata minerva fuit. 
So what does that mean? Well, I'm not really sure. It's getting late. Okay. Well, so they can always take a Latin class. They can take a Latin class right. if they want to know. Fair enough. Sounds good. What's next? Uh, what's next is we're going to go to Incalulam in Urba Gandawo, Inquanatus est Carlos Quintus, which means it's a little poem that he wrote to the apartment building <laughs> in the city of uh, Gandawo. He wrote it to the building? To the building. I like this already. In Ghent, uh, where Charles V was born. Ah, okay. Terrarum domitor plus quo vis caesar caesar. Carolus hoc primum separa coipit humo. Which, can you translate that? Yeah, which means something like, O ruler of the whole world, terrarum domitor. You who are uh, much more Caesar than Caesar, Charles, right? This is the place where first he began to creep across the earth. So he's, he's comparing him to, he's like a, a serpa, like a, like a snake. Yeah. yeah. Charles V. This is the little apartment building where Charles V was born, the emperor. And this is where he began to spread. Ah, okay. Across the lands. Interesting. So he can write about love. He can write about arrival, Ovid's birthday, politics. He can do it all. So Jeff, we have one little more sample from Elegy 11. And you're going to read the first couple lines, right? I am. Self or es sel morbus amor sel mentis imago. Si vale quid magnos, quod probat esse deos. Very nice, very nice. And that means something along the lines of whether love is um, a madness, furor, or whether it is a disease, morbus, or maybe it's just a figment of the imagination, a mentis imago. Or maybe it's something that proves that the powerful gods exist. Mm. So I like this because, you know, love could be really any of four things, but it, they, it demonstrates that there are powerful gods above, Venus and Cupid and so forth. Right, right. So once again, kind of tapping into that uh, kind of pre-Christian classical construct, it's not Deus, it's Deus. Right. It's uh, the gods. But apparently without sacrificing his theological convictions. Right. This didn't seem to um, incite in his audience some sense of outrage. This was just how you worked these themes into your ideas. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap this up, and there's so much more that we could do here. Uh, I mean, a ton of his his poetry, it's fascinating, fascinating, it survives, uh, but we don't have the time. No, but um, let's end on a humorous note. Okay, we say? can do that. You got an anecdote for us? I do. I have this epigram. Uh, this is recorded in a book by Daniel Hewitt. So, this one says that Heinzius had quote the infirmity of loving his bottle somewhat too well. <laughs> I don't really believe it. I think this is based on the the hymn to Bacchus. Oh, okay. And I, I don't think he was a drunk, but that was one of the legends about Heinzius. The quote goes on, of which his pupils were not ignorant. For once, having excused himself from giving a lecture, there was placed over the door of the lecture room a paper with the following notice. Daniel Heinzius non legat hodie propter hesternum crapulam, which means uh, Daniel Heinzius will not lecture today because of yesterday's hangover. <laughs> Returning once at night from a convivial party, with his head more steady than his legs, Heinzius threw off this distich, which is, you know, a two-line poem. He said, Stapes, sta bona pace, stapes, ne labora mi pace, stapes out lapides, he mihi lectus erdrant, which means, stand still, foot, stand still, foot, good foot, stand still. Don't fall on me, good foot, stand, foot, or the stones will become my bed. <laughs> do, you, do you think he is that apocryphal there's, too? There's no way someone could compose that drunk. Heinzius could. No, I mean we learned about this guy. Isn't it the case that when people are drunk, they can't put one foot ahead of 
the next? Isn't that why the police, you know, do the sobriety test? Mm. Touch your nose. Touch your nose and step. uh, Right. Um, This is what I'm told. The sobriety test is not throw off two beautiful lines of elegiac couplet in Latin. I'm saying if anybody could pull it off, I'm thinking this is is our guy. Okay. Maybe Heinzius could do it. So we got to wrap up. We do. We want to say thanks to Mishka Fernando for putting this together so wonderfully each week. Always. We've got to uh, say thanks to our friends Ken Tamplin and Scott Van Zen that provide the great music. And uh, we're going to throw a plug in here, aren't we? We are, for the Moss Method. Yeah, and this time we're going to let our narrator, our voiceover guy, Brian, do it. That's right. So here goes. The Danish physicist Niels Bohr once said that an expert is a man who has made all the mistakes which can be made in a narrow field. Dr. David Noe is that man. His expertise will guide you into a deep, rich, and satisfying knowledge of ancient Greek. Go to mossmethod.com. Simple, accessible, expert Greek instruction. That's mossmethod.com. Start your journey with Greek today. All right, that's it for this week. Listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. Leave a review on your favorite platform. You can write to Dave at Dave at Adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V or to me at Jeff at Adnauseum.com. Check out the website and keep on listening and keep sending those suggestions. Yes, you could also pick up some merch if you want to. That's right. Adnauseum themed t-shirt. Support what we're doing. Let the world know you're taking in and keeping down the classics. That's right. Dave, what we got on tap for next week? We have the wonderful Dr. Mike Fontaine. No, we already did that one well we sort of did it well boy oh that's why that's the one that that crashed and burned that was the rerun you never heard that's right we had the technological difficulties correct the tech diffs but he was nice enough to come back he came back and he recorded as we'll see i think he's going to record <laughs> a wonderful future episode how to tell a joke yes it's good stuff good working stuff. title the rerun you never heard so tune in and dave you got our gustatory parting shot yes i do this is from the author ken follette uh, who wrote The Pillars of the Earth. I read one of his novels a long time ago, hmm. uh, Wings of Eagles. You ever read any of that? I have that? not. I have not. Uh, Wings of Eagles was Ross Perot in the Iran hostage rescue. Oh, okay. Anyway, the gustatory parting shot is this. Hard work should be rewarded by good food. Can't argue with that. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.